How do you handle a boss that cuts vaccines in half? What about dispensing only half doses of heartworm or flea preventives? All of these little dilemmas add up to stress in the workplace, and this week we want to talk about how you should handle it if you're confronted by one of these dilemmas on The Veterinary Viewfinder. Welcome back to The Veterinary Viewfinder, the podcast that tackles the toughest topics in veterinary medicine. And medicine is hard enough without our bosses, our managers, or even colleagues doing things that just are inappropriate, illegal, and maybe unethical. This week, we want to talk about the impact that those little actions throughout the day may have on our personal well-being and how we should deal with them if you do find yourself in one of those situations. But before we get into that situation, as always, I am one of your co-hosts, Dr. Ernie Ward. And I'm registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser. And Becky, I can tell you it's mid-September because my allergies, uh, something, I'm congested, I'm all nasally. It is, it is. And I'm not one so prone to allergies, but now as I hit on the other back end of the 50s, I think the allergies decided to come back and, and get me. I'm a Zizol girl, promo, promo code veterinary viewfinder, but uh, I I live for the Zizol. So I totally get Yeah. People don't even realize how bad it can be here at the coast. And I think we're seeing our pets suffering as well. I know my little um, Chewini was doing the little reverse sneeze thing. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's fully allergy related right now. It is. Well, luckily, viewfinders, I got a little salt water therapy this morning. We have, uh, when we're recording this, Hurricane Fiona is way off the coast. Let's uh, thoughts and prayers to the people in Hispaniola, Puerto Rico, and of course, Bermuda. But uh, hey, we got some great waves. So at least that helped a little bit. But today we want to talk about helping you guys out with a dilemma that's probably more common than we like to admit. And that are those little actions and habits and and little things we do in clinic that really are kind of on the edge of legal even, but they certainly raise a lot of questions. So Becky, you were confronted recently with a, a type of situation, and we're just going to keep this in very broad generic terms. Maybe share that with the viewfinders. That's what sort of sparked this whole discussion today. Right. So you guys know I do a lot of talking for Beringer, and I travel around the country, and I get the honor of meeting technicians literally coast to coast. And we talk about all kinds of different topics that kind of are are really client communication based around preventatives and lifestyle vaccines and those types of things. And and they're really, if you guys have listened for any amount of time, know they're they're really passion points for me, especially when it comes to preventatives. Right. So I hear these questions or these situations that you think like, oh, there's no way people still do that. There's no way people still think that. And then you find out they are and what struck me, and 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 you kind of mentioned some specifics in the in the intro, but like what struck me is we have these really amazing, intelligent, educated team members who are questioning their education, their knowledge, because they trust their veterinarian, and their veterinarian's doing some really crazy things or has some really old school thinking around preventatives or vaccines or honestly anything in the clinic and it gets a little bit it it just it just struck me how these individuals were insecure and feeling like I thought I knew better but then they do this and it was really kind of an emotional sitch for them and it just it just struck a conversation in my head of thinking this is actually more common than I I think maybe you and I even realized because 
we try to walk the path of best practices and and we we travel in the conference crowds and where they're preaching these things. I think when you're really on ground level going door to door, best practices are not the most consistent practices. Yeah. And, and again, you know, this also sort of links back to that that case that's been going through the courts for a long time of Dr. John Robb up in Connecticut, the guy who, the veterinarian who was giving half doses of rabies back, you know, 10 or so years ago, uh, wound up getting sort of turned in by some people and was sanctioned, you know, severely, you know, punished, penalized, uh, financial at least, and, and took his license, I think, uh, during a probationary period or whatever. Don't know all the details of the case, but um, Becky, just so you know, like that case was still percolating throughout the courts up until... I believe last year, and they, of course, they upheld you know his sanctions and so forth. But so this this cutting of the half doses of rabies obviously put those dogs at risk of not being legitimately covered or adequately covered against a, a highly zoonotic and dangerous disease. Yeah. So so you know when we talk about other vaccines and other types of things, I think there's a there's a sentiment out there amongst many veterinarians. And look, you know, I. I've, I've expressed my concerns and I was part of a team that helped bring uh, one of these newer, lower antigen load vaccines uh, years ago as part of that steering committee for that. It was a really fun experience to be involved with that company at the time. But regardless, you know, we know that, that yes, we could probably do vaccines better, but you can't just do it on your own, right? I right. mean, that's when you run afoul. And, and, and again, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of issues here that, that start to impact how you feel about your work, right? I mean, again, you've got clients yelling at you, people complaining about costs, colleagues maybe who aren't as friendly or, or supportive as they have to be. And then you have to put up with your vet cutting doses of vaccines in half or saying, sell them half of a heartworm preventive or whatever. I mean, it, it gets overwhelming. Well, it does. And I think when I think about the veterinary team side, uh, we have so many non-credentialed team members who don't have maybe formal education, right? So a lot of what they've learned is on the job. A lot of what they've learned maybe under that veterinarian. And so to them, that's court memory. That's the way it goes, right? And so right. they, it is really hard to you don't want to criticize anybody. You don't want to say like, hey, your veterinarian has no idea what they're doing and this is terrifying. But you also don't want to feed into the lip service. I, I don't want to pretend that that's okay. So it puts everybody in a weird situation, right? Because then I'm thinking about like, what happens when the drug rep goes in there and is trying to sell and explain and talk about their products and people are like, oh yeah, but we just do, we just give half. Like, I'm sure the drug rep in that environment can't be like, well, that's completely ridiculous, right? Because they, <laughs> this is their client. Um, I don't. Even, I can't even wrap my head around this, right? And then the legalities and the obligation that we have, you're literally throwing your obligation out of the window that you have to your client. Now, it makes me wonder, do you really truly believe, like they would have to believe this, right? These aren't, these yeah, aren't yeah, people yeah. who intend for the pet to be not protected, but what are what are they going off of? Aren't we people of science? Right. Well, well that's a that's the point of this is the fact that in the case in in Connecticut, the court was like, "Hey, you know what? Right or wrong, we have to adhere to the law, and the law is written as thus, and you can't cut the rabies." And in fact, what what made those cases? I remember when I I had strong objections to it at the time because, you know, the veterinarian wasn't telling the clients; he wasn't disclosing. So that's that's 
fraudulent, right? right? I mean, you know, so so I think that it's really important that, you know, if you're going to do these things, A, you need to inform the the client that you're doing them, and B, the science should back you in some way, shape, or form. Becky, this reminds me of a, of a story years ago. So we used to do, at our main clinic, we had tons of vet students who would come in throughout the rotation. So usually uh, third, fourth year, uh, they would come in uh, from all over the country, spend, you know, two to four weeks at our clinic doing their clinical externships and so forth. And I'll never forget yeah, there was a young uh, veterinary, veteran, they're all young, <laughs> young veterinary student who was in there. And so we were, uh, it was like, I don't know, first, second day, whatever. So she's in with me on a surgery. It's just a basic spay or neuter, whatever, no problem, right? And so we're going through the whole thing. And, you know, and, and of course, I always gowned up. I mean, we did everything to the letter of the law. And uh, because I just, that's how I practiced always. So anyway, we're going through this whole thing and we're, you know, we're, we're blah, blah, blah. I'm closing up, I'm finished and, and I'm starting to, to leave, leave the, uh, the pet back with the technicians to sort of do the final recovery. So I'm walking out and the young lady was like, I can't believe, she goes, like, you don't wake them up on the table? And I'm like, what are you, what are you talking about? She goes, well, like, like where I worked at, you know, in college, like the vet would always tell us to start turning off the gas like five or 10 minutes before they were <gasps> completed <laughs> so that they would be awake. And he said it would save money and all that. I'm like, you know, so, so again, like that's one of those little things. And of course, she quickly was realizing that wasn't standard of care or the way it oh, should be. I feel like every technician that works with that doctor is being treated for severe penetrating ulcers. But, you know, but you kind of, I kind of oh. get, you know, I, I think those types of tactics or strategies or, or just actions are more common than we think, right? So so here I was going, why? No, no. Yeah, they're going to sit in here for 10 or 15 minutes to recover the pet, but we certainly don't want to wake it up on the table and we don't want in any way ever risk that they might, you know, not have proper, you know, anesthesia or pain control. But, but you, you see we're probably that vet. It was probably an old school, you know, boomer vet back from the day. And, and back then, you know, if hopefully they had isoflurane, but maybe they were still using, who knows. And so maybe then, you know, that vet, uh, to save money, you know, to save resources, just always cut them off a little early, right? So, I mean, I can see the origin of these kinds of things, but imagine now, like you're saying, Becky, you're a technician in there and, and you're witnessing these dogs and cats kind of waking up. I mean, that's a pretty traumatic recovery if you ask me oh i would be i'd be out i'm like i can't (laughs) i can't even form a sentence over here because i'm thinking about like how scared i am it's going to chew through the tube how scared i am it's like going to rip out every suture it has come and and like i guess it's such a good point because i i know there was a time we we didn't understand the the sentient nature of these animals right so maybe you just don't think they're going to have that pain but Oh, man, as a person who is like thinking about running anesthesia on a patient that's like, okay, let's roll the dice. It's probably good enough now. And and I've probably worked with some old school vets who who had that kind of you're you're right. I guess I guess. Yeah, I'm terrified. But I think part of that is is if the protocols are as old as the veterinarian, (laughs) (laughs) then we need to question. But if this is being done at university, so this is what scares me the most. Right is this is being done at university. And we talk about how many new vets come out and it's like, okay, associate vet pieces out on you for two weeks because they're going on vacation because they've, they're glad you're there and you're just running things. I mean, how do we undo those? But again, the stress, and I, I remember these yeah, days when yeah. new docs would come in and they'd all have their own different way of doing things and they were all 
wrong for the most part. And it was, you know, crazy. And you have to like undo all of this thinking. How do you do that when then they land in a place where now the veterinarian is telling you to cut off anesthesia or split vaccines? Right, right. And and again, viewfinders, you know, we're, we're leading up to trying to, how do you deal with this stuff? But we're also trying to paint a picture of this stuff's out there and it might be as innocent as what I'm about to describe. I, what I hear often, now I am in the Southeast United States. Becky and I have grown up and lived here in the South. So I originally am from Georgia by way of Alabama. So I'm North Carolina. So I only know areas that heartworm and disease is endemic, right? I mean, you know, so heartworm disease is very, very common every place I've ever lived. And so, you know, we're used to pushing year round. Well, when I was growing up, you know, there was a vet in our town, our, our small town in Georgia, who would tell people things like, just give them the heartworm preventive every other month, right? Mm -hmm. So if a person had a cost constraint, this person would say, and look, there is some science to back that up. So I'm not going to completely argue, you know, that that was the wrong approach. I think it does put the pet at undue, an unneeded risk, I should say, especially living in Southwest Georgia where we were growing up. And so for me, you know, Becky, it's like those kind of things, A, you either, if you're in that environment, if you're in that culture of clinic, you either adopt that as dogmatic, right? Well, this is right. This is correct. I support this, even though I don't know why, but I support it because it's who we are as a culture, right? It's dogma. <laughs> which mm -hmm. is dangerous. Or you start to take this tension, friction, unease into your being every single day. And you literally have to tell someone something that you don't know is true or accurate, you know? And we on the Viewfinder uh, podcast, Becky, we've we've talked about like, what if, what do you, what about if you work in a clinic that does declaws or, uh, or tail dockings or whatever, right? You know, do claw removals, debarkings, right? Those are unethical. Those are kind of easy to spot. But I think these other things add up and erode your your mental well-being, right? Because if all day long you have to sort of support, you know, or at least ignore these types of things, it, it's got to wear on you. It's got to. Well, that was sort of, I think, what I took away from it is there was this kind of emotional turmoil for the staff of like, this, I don't think this is right, but I have the conflict of just trusting my veterinarian based on the fact that they're a veterinarian. Right. And yeah, so I think, I think it actually probably is going to be worse now because for a minute they were questioning themselves, right? And now they, they, they were told flat out that that's not correct. So now they're going to have to go back and sort of conflict with that. And, and, you know, I think this is where, you know, like you and I, so we have some advice about what to do about it, but it really creates a situation for the staff. I think that that is because, I mean, ultimately a veterinarian can say, if you don't like it and you don't like what I do, go find somewhere else. Right. And again, viewfinders, I, I have found in my over 30 years in, in practice that if if the practice does one of these things, there's probably a lot more things they're doing, right? So it's typically not just isolated to this one little thing like, well, I only cut vaccines. There are going to be other corners that are cut in that practice. And again, these things just add up. So I want to kind of now switch, Becky, to, to talking about you're in that situation. Maybe what are some of the steps that you should take? And, and I'll just start off, Becky. I mean, with the obvious one, you need to confront the person who's doing this, right? You, the, the boss, the manager, the colleague, and ask them to explain why they're doing this. Like, could you explain to me 
how it's safe to give heartworm preventive every other month or half dose or, or split the vaccines or whatever, right? Try to get them to explain the, the, the science. And I'll tell you, you need to do follow-up questions, Becky, because it's going to be very easy, like in that situation that you illustrated, for the vet just to go, no, 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 it's fine. Look, look, there's tons of science. Those vaccines have got way too much antigen anyway for these little dogs. So it's perfectly safe and fine. And then you need to say, can you back that up? Like, is there some science to prove that? I mean, can you explain to me, like, how do I explain this to a client, right? So that that's my first step. What about you? Well, right. I think that asking instead of telling is the most important part yeah. of this, right? From an from a support staff uh, standpoint, I think it can be a little bit trickier in the feeling confrontational. And what you and I both know in the reality of people who know that they're doing things wrong um, <laughs> is they tend to get defensive yep. very quickly. Right. And they're, it's kind of going to be their first go-to. So if you don't approach it just so, there's a very good chance. And even if you do approach it just so, there's a good chance they're going to immediately become defensive because they know it's wrong. Yep. Um, and so I think in those situations, there's very little you can do to be reasonable. However, I, I agree. Approaching it with a question like, hey, what I learned was, you know, that we you can't split vaccines because most of it's carrier. How do you know you're getting the right amount of antigen, X, Y, or Z, whatever? Right. I think you're right. And then the same thing is like, oh, you know, do you have an article or do you have any anything I could read to learn more about that? But chances are, I feel like you're going to get blown off, right? Because again, yeah. they know what they're doing is wrong. Yep, yep. And, and again, I would say viewfinders, if de defensiveness is the answer, then that's that's all you need to know. Okay, so Becky, now you're in that situation and the person does get defensive, right? So they don't really want to answer your question. What's the next thing that you would advise them to do? So now they're like, they're, they're doubling down. So what steps would you say, okay, how do you handle this? Because this is causing me problems. Well, that's, I, I, I mean, I guess that's like the major thing, right? Is yeah. you kind of have to decide where it falls in your moral ethic value lineup, right? Because is this something that could cost the health of a patient, of a pet? Is it something that could be ultimately deadly? I think they, there is a point where you can try to figure out how do we explain to our clients that we do differently than what's recommended or X, Y, or Z. Um, I think at some point you're going to have to make a decision. And I think this is where knowing what whistleblower laws in your state look like, because some yeah. people are willing to make waves and some people aren't. But if there are things being done inconsistent and incorrectly that are extremely dangerous, I think they need to be reported. Absolutely. But I also think that if it's not a reportable situation yet, or you don't feel comfortable, leaning into your drug reps is an incredible way mm. to address some of these issues. And you can usually catch them on your own or shoot them a text message or a phone call and say, hey, Dr. So-and-so is doing this and I feel really uncomfortable about it. Um, I've addressed them. And I just like, I didn't know if there's a way we could do an in-service or we could somehow have a conversation or if you could get support from them. I think they could be helpful to lean into. But when all that doesn't work, I mean, I think you have to make a, a kind of big decision. Yeah, but because this is your mental well-being, your physical well-being, right? This is your health at stake. And Becky, one thing too I'd, I'd like to add. So let's say you do confront them and say, hey, could you explain to me why we do this? Or maybe give me some, you know, sort of paper that I can read or some science or whatever. Uh, and then they get defensive. The next thing that I would try to very 
civilly, subtly, but, you know, firmly say, you know, it does make me feel uncomfortable. You know, I mean, you can you understand why this, you know, I wasn't taught this way or I, I understand that it's this other way uh, and I'm uncomfortable with this. So can you kind of put my fears at ease, right? I would try to somehow say, look, I'm uncomfortable here. Give me more, <laughs> right? Now, I, I, yeah. I'm with you, Becky. Chances are they're just going to be like, well, that's your problem, not mine, <laughs> you know? Well, right. And and I think that's like, I mean, that's where those hard decisions are going to have to happen because I guess we always want to get to somebody's why, right? And if they say to you, you know, I've worked in this field for 20 years. I, I've done it this way. Every time I've never had a dog come back with Lepto or Lyme or, you know, uh, rabies or whatever it is, then... Okay. <laughs> what are you going to say? I think this is, again, I think this is where you have to decide you're either going to, like, report it. You're going to bring it to office management. Now, again, I will say this is where uh, hello unionization, uh, Liz yeah. Houston. Hello corporate practice if you have the good ones that give you a whistleblower hotline and a place to reach out. Right. Um I do think looking. I, I guess what I want to say is I don't think being complacent is the answer. Is the answer? I think that no, there is no. some other way to do it. And honestly, um, if you're in a multi doctor practice and this is one doctor, I would li- I, I would possibly go so far as to go to management and say I refuse to work with doctor so and so. I disagree with his vaccine practices. I'm on paper. Um, I, I'm I want to be on record saying this and that. If if this is continued to be allowed, I'm not going to work with that doctor anymore. Yeah. Um. But again, that's a tough one. That's a big leap. That's taking your job at risk. Then again, if you lose your job over it, I mean, let me help you find the address to your state medical medical board. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point because, this, yes, absolutely. If you are fired over bringing this up, then 100%, this is when you take it to the next level. But, you know, again, Becky, just getting back to this, it's like if you remain in that situation it, it it only escalates from there, right? I mean, this stuff doesn't go away. You cannot sweep these emotions under the proverbial rug forever. They do wind up tripping you up later, right? Because that mound under that rug gets pretty high pretty quick. And so for, for me, you know, what I'm trying to do, you know, Becky and I are always talking about the mental health well-being, you know, why aren't people staying engaged with the the profession and and all these things. And and we keep coming back to these issues, right? So it's very easy to point the finger at the client, which is what most of the time we are doing as a profession. And we're always going to say, we need to put the mirror up to ourselves. And this is one of those areas where I believe strongly, and I think Becky does as well, that, you know what, these are the things that just erode your joy, your mental state, they stability, status, you know, they, they affect you physically. I mean, Becky, you just can't stay in an environment every day where you're doing things that you feel are wrong. Well, yeah, I guess that's that was, you know, really the nature of the conversation today, right? Is it's like what I saw and what I see when I am encountering these situations are professionals who care, who are worried about their patients, because of these various practices, and it, and it truly can be anything from, you know, uh, like we said, cost-cutting corners on vaccines or preventatives or using expired drugs or, yeah. um, and, and saying it doesn't matter, you know, mishandling things. I mean, there's so many different things that, you know, washing syringes, for heaven's sake. I mean, there's so many things people do out there that we're like, okay, and 
if it feels wrong, it probably is wrong, right? Like, what do they, like, who was it? We had a guest that said, if you feel it in your gut and your butt, it's probably. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember who, whose eloquent words those were. Um, but then it means something probably needs to get done. And it's, it's a hard thing to, again, this is a place I advocate for therapy as well as mentorship. I think you, there are folks you can reach out to. I think there's, hey, what do I do? Has anybody encountered this? Um, take action, I think, because when you look back on it, you will have lost a part of yourself to doing things you know are not ethically or morally best. Yeah. And viewfinders, there's one other side to this coin. <laughs> there are always two sides to the coins that I use. Um, and that is you could be wrong, right? Some, you may perceive something as cutting a corner or putting a patient at risk. But if you will go down this process and then confront that person initially and say, can you explain to me, you may find that there is some rationale, some good scientific legitimacy to what they're doing. And so I think that you have to be also open-minded to, to enough to say, okay, hey, I just learned something today. And that's that's kind of the other thing too, Becky. I just wanted to make sure we land that there. I, I would imagine 98% of the time, it's not that, but you know, the 2%, Hey, you know, you learn something. I, I, I'm glad you said that though, because there is, you know, it's, it's a notorious thing where you have somebody new come on board and they're like, well, at my last clinic, at my last clinic, mm -hmm, at my mm -hmm. last clinic. And then you're like, okay, well, it's becoming a drinking game. We get it. At your last clinic, you did it different. And we don't even maybe necessarily open our ears to that into learning how they did it at a different clinic or as a new person we maybe cling to what we did at the right. last clinic. You're right. Um, asking why, first and foremost, is great. But I also think, you know, if you've got somebody new on board or if you're a new veterinarian working with the tech, whatever, but maybe explaining why up front, you know, um, presenting these new ideas and why you think they're good instead of just sort of monologuing about them. But you're right, always an opportunity to learn. So I'm glad you said that. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, viewfinders, you know, this is one of those complex discussions and topics that no clear answers, but we do think it has real impact on your mental well-being. And so if you're in a situation where you are having to put up with and look the other way or turn a blind eye to multitude of things that are happening in your clinic or just one thing. Let me tell you, it at some point will come and just hollow you out. So, you know, again, we're just trying to say we need to address these things head on as a profession. We think there's plenty of blame to go around. And today is just talking about things that maybe we are doing to ourselves to create a mental health crisis in our profession. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. What are your experiences? Are there things in your clinic that maybe you're slightly uncomfortable with and you'd like to talk about? That that's what we like to do. We like to help. And so Becky would love to get your, your email. So if you have a problem, send it to Becky. Becky, how can they send you I that email? I love getting emails from you guys. I'm a little behind on them if you've messaged. I definitely am getting back to you, but it's at veterinaryviewfinder at gmail.com. You also can hit us up on the social medias. Uh, although, you know, don't, don't, don't sell out your clinic on our social media. We don't <laughs> want your true. drama. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's a veterinary viewfinder. <laughs> we had a couple of those we've had to take down because people are like, uh, could you We don't want your drama. Uh, yeah. you can, that's a veterinary viewfinder on Facebook and Instagram or at that viewfinder at Twitter. That's right, guys. It is a beautiful day here on the Carolina coast. We hope wherever you're listening today, it's just as beautiful. And more importantly, we hope that you are having a just a happy day. So from the viewfinder family, guys, we will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.